What time is it? 8 30. <laughs> Welcome to episode 1336 of the Livingston Experience because we've done one episode so far for every win of Greg Popovich's career and I'm joined once again on this fine Sunday afternoon by my co-host Darren Hill. Now Daz, did you catch any of the record-breaking performance yesterday and, and what were your sort of uh, initial thoughts when you saw Pop break the record? Um, I wouldn't have missed it, Daz. Um, in an era of hyperbole, um, short-termism, uh, narrative-driven awards, uh, way too early MVP conversations, uh, goat debates, and the rest of it. It was it was nice to tune in for an actual, um, genuine piece of NBA history yesterday, Daz. So absolutely, I, I confess I didn't. I've been I've been score watching to see. I was hoping they would win it the night before. Um, that didn't quite happen, but definitely was was going to tune in until it was uh, until Pop got there. So absolutely, Daz, I saw the whole uh, whole fourth quarter. So at least I could get to see the context and how they won, and and so I could probably appreciate a bit of the final and the yeah, and see how they celebrated. So. I probably thought it would happen today against the Pacers. They were down thirteen in the Jazz game, and I had to go out. I was meeting some friends at the pub. And I just sort of thought, oh, we'll just keep an eye on it. And then as we got into the pub, the Spurs are up. And I have to say, I mean, this says something a little bit about the NBA product, which might take us a little bit off track. The ending of that game was just interminable. Like, it was clear the Spurs were going to win probably with, I don't know, 50 seconds of the game. Maybe it was a little bit less than that, 35 seconds. And then it was just a parade to the foul line for either team. It was one of those games that literally took out. Yeah. It felt like it took about 20 minutes for that game to end. And I was sitting there on really dodgy um, dodgy internet connection and it was streaming in and out and it was cutting in and out. And it was just so frustrating because I just wanted to watch that last minute, but it was very cathartic in what's been a tough season for the Spurs uh, when they finally got the win. And you could sell how invested everyone was in them and even everyone on the bench. I think Pop was the least invested of everyone in the stadium, actually, in actually getting the record in the end. Uh, because when they got Becky Hammond was up and down on the bench, a different, she was a lot more animated than you'd normally see her. And uh, then Rudy Gay came over, obviously expert from the Jazz, gave Pop a big hug, DeJounte gave a big hug, and then all the players sort of gathered around him. And Pop quickly rushed into the dressing room. Uh, you know, to make sure that they didn't mm. make too big a deal out of it. But uh, it, it was a great moment, wasn't it, Daz? I mean, to see that, uh, to see that sort of outpouring of joy from a young team and just, and what I've loved this season watching Poppy is just the enthusiasm that he has, even for coaching a team at a very different stage than what he had for the, for the sort of that 20, that golden 20 year period that he had preceding this. Yeah, and you talk about it being an, an interminable ending, and I, perhaps that feels like it when you're maybe a little bit holding your breath, hoping for an outcome. But you would know this far more intimately than me, though. I, what I was seeing was the the um, a team who's really struggled. Right, your your record, the Spurs' record in crunch time is is abysmal this year. I don't know what the numbers are in front of me, Dad. Well, I'll give you they one said number. It during those, was, leading in yeah, yesterday, they were zero and thirty three. 
when when behind after three quarters. And put yeah, it, it was, mm, this is a yeah. team that is competitive night to night and has a pretty good yeah. point differential. So they, they're in most yeah. of these games, even if they are behind 0-33. That's how poor they've been mm. in crunch time. Do, yeah, don't, don't quote me. I, I want to say it was, they did say it during the game, but it was something like they're 4-19 in games where they're within five points with five, five minutes. Something, it's, it's really bad. It's maybe they're winning one in five. Right. Mm-hmm. That's about that. So I was watching it with that context when I saw was your spot on there. Everyone's super engaged, but so were the Utah Jazz, right? The Utah, this is Rudy and Donovan, right? They're, they're playing, they're also playing really hard. They're playing to win this game. And so you're right. It was a foul fest at the end, but that being said, it was, what I saw was and what I think is quite a nice, a really great 1336 is pop did what he did. He had bloody Devin Vassell was in, in crunch time and in at the end of the game and the is calling plays and Pirtle is doing Pirtle things and they're getting their shots sent out of there by Rudy, but they're busting ass, you know, to collect the rebound. They're, they're making simple plays. They're making simple passes. They're boxing out on, on the other end. So they didn't get second chance opportunities. They didn't do any stupid falls. Like they often do stupid falls. Yeah. So I'm like, you're right. It was interminable, but they actually, for a young team, they stuck with it. They played smart and they held on, right? So it was actually a quality, quality NBA victory as perhaps as painful as that has been throughout the season. So it was nice that it actually wasn't some fluke, you know, or it wasn't like Utah was missing five starters and it was just some roll out the red carpet. So I got to say in, in, in the 1336, this was a properly earned, earned victory. Um, so that was nice to see, I have to say. And then yeah, I could probably see a bit of relief on David Robinson's face in the crowd where I think he's been showing up every night for the last few. He's like, ooh, all right, I can, I can miss this bloody Pacers game tomorrow, <laughs> which turned out to be a, a brutal spectacle today. Predictably, there's no doubt there's probably some hangovers. But but it was quite, it was great to see. And yeah, I, I posted the video. I'm sure you've watched it probably a couple times with a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of fluid in the eyes, probably Daz. But that was, it was quite a nice moment where he, he did let his guard down for for a little bit in front of the cameras anyway, and mm. and did some celebration and celebrating and and uh, with his team for sure. Well, I mean, and in the outpouring of, and I want to get your take on this because I think with the thing with Popovich, uh, and you know, I think at the moment, you know, he certainly I don't like greatest of all time arguments, but he's up there in that conversation of, of the great coaches of all time. But it's not. With Popovich, it's not so much an X's and O's, you know, he's not that X's and O's coach. I mean, he knows the X's and O's and the plays and things like that, but it is the human interactions and just the leadership capabilities that he's brought to the table. And you look across the league and just the amount of people that have been impacted by Greg Popovich and what he's him and, and R.C. Buford and others have done at the Spurs, you know, Budenholzer, um, Monty Williams, uh, you know, Emi Wadoku now, Brett Brown for many years, obviously, at, at, at the Sixers. And Joe the- Prunty. <laughs> Joe Prunty, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, even people like Mike Malone, who coached with Pop at, at, a, um, at Basketball Without Borders, I think it was, years ago, and just has such reverence for the, for the guy. But everyone that's talked about this guy says, we don't talk about basketball. Like when he's talking to me, it's not about basketball. Like Monty Williams said, 
after they lost the finals, they said, well, Zach Lowe, I said, did you reach out to Pop? And he said, I reached, he said, I did reach out to Pop. And he said, all Pop did was want to talk about wine and his holiday and everything else because, and, and family and that. And he said, because he wanted to show me that, look, it's just a game. Like, and yet you can be, you can be upset that you lost the finals and it was a tough loss for Phoenix, et cetera. But at the end of the day, never lose sight of what's important. And I think, we, we often talked as about human-centred leadership, and I think that's what Pop has really brought to the table. And, and what that's, that's been the secret of his, his success. It's every interaction matters with people, and if people are valued across an organisation and you sort of see people and recognise people, and that, that's been the philosophy of the Spurs. And James Borrego talked about this, the Charlotte coach. He was a video guy at the Spurs, and he said everyone's opinion was valued at that organization. So he said, it didn't matter if it was me or Budenholz or whoever, if we had an idea and something that we came up with, it would be heard out. It wouldn't always be taken on, but we had, we knew we had a voice. And I think that is, you know, there's something there, I think about how to build an organization. The final point I'll make before I, and this is a story I only heard today, which I didn't know. When Monty Williams first took over in New Orleans, Popovich organised for the entire New Orleans uh, organisation, so coaches, video guys, players, to come out and do pre-season with the Spurs. And you had a young Anthony Davis working out alongside Tim Duncan. That that probably didn't take, as it turned out, uh, the same sort of philosophies. But Monty Williams said that's what set them up for that little run that they had to at least get to the playoffs uh, within the few years that he was there. But that's the sort of, uh, you know, sharing philosophy and and once you're in that Spurs family it's a Spurs family for life and he and, and that's the way people feel across the organization and that's how they're treated but I mean what are you I mean in terms of the leadership from from Greg Popovich and I mean I know you're sort of being a leader yourself at different stage in your career what's the value of that sort of human-centered leadership and having that sort of a philosophy within an organization and particularly when it comes to like something like basketball it's enormous. Um, you almost can't overstate it, particularly because so much of what we see on television, we read in the national media, that we consume and get pulled into the, you know, uh, debates, conversations, analysis, particularly in social media and online, is that this aspect is wildly under-discussed, wildly under, wildly under misunderstood in part because people don't have the time or a large also in part, people are just too young. You know, a lot of social media fans would be, you know, teens and twenties and such and have absolutely no idea what goes into it. It's, you know, it's X's and O's and asset values and salary cap machinations and things. And, you know, um, and even you see debates, you know, the, the bloody Kevin O'Connor's of the world, you know, debating, you know, coach of the year when in fact they have absolutely no idea the critic, how important, I'll, I'll term it this way, Daz, relationship building and trust building, how important that is in getting optimal performance, both at an individual level and, and a group level. It's enormous. And I think that's why you probably see this, the, the loyalty for the role of right reasons is that there was a mutuality between Pop and his players or Pop and his coaches. There was mutual respect and, and mutual interest. And in, you know, mutual ad admiration. And when you have that feeling, 
you have that sensation. You don't forget what that was like. You take that with you everywhere. And so I think there's, unless you're Kawhi Leonard, so there's something really powerful about that and wildly, wildly under, under discussed. Now it's probably, you know, but it doesn't make for great radio except for the nine, you know, Levington experience listeners. You know, it doesn't make for great analysis um, partly because, well, we just don't have, we don't have a lens into it, right? We, we have no idea. You know, we can infer, we can hear the stories and gather little tidbits on the outside, um, but it's really hard to understand if not completely inappropriate. We'll never understand what that relationship's like between Pop and Rudy Gay when Rudy is the first Utah jazz player to come over there and turn Pop around and, you know, embrace him. You know, there, there's a, you know, whatever those two have in, in between each other is no doubt something that will far outlive, you know, X's and O's. So for me, it's, it's hugely underrated. And, and let, the second point I'll make, especially in this messed up COVID um, broken world, you know, the, the world of, of two poles of, of conflation, oversimplification, a world of, of madness, right? Is we just, we often fail to put things in a broader context. And that's what Pop does, that sounds like with his players and his teams. He's always putting the events of the day or a competitive um, endeavor in a broader context, whether that context is the world, that context is life, that context is family, that context is about personal fulfillment and happiness, that context is about, right, um, a, a spiritual realm, that's, again, that's something that any student um, in any realm, whether that's sport or, or business or personal or whatever, you know, will we'll take with them. And so, and so that's for me is you almost can't overstate it because it's not an amplified part of what the discourse is about team building and about sport and about the, the nature of competitiveness. And yeah, there's no question that, um, is Pop a dying breed? I don't know if that's, maybe that's a hypothetical hypothetical question and maybe we will segue this to you know, are there do we see any do we see any positive signs that you know people like pop are you know are continuing to um you know to thrive you know in in the nba or is, is it moving towards just this hyper um you know uh, rinse and sorry just kind of the tindering of of the nba as well where you just keep swiping swiping left until you can find something that works for a couple of years and swipe left again and fire them out and just this, this constant, you know, people as consumable and then replaceable. So no, no doubt these old um, spirits are probably a bit of a dying breed, but I, I wonder if there will, will be a resurrection. Well, I mean, it sounds easy when you, when you say, and I, I can't get my head around why more organizations don't look at the, the blueprint that was set up at San Antonio in terms of how to treat people within the organization, how to treat players, and just so many organizations just don't do it. And it was one of the big mistakes. I mean, you want to talk about the, the process in Philly, and they had Brett Brown in there who would have been a part of that uh, you know, culture building at San Antonio, but he couldn't make an impact on the culture that was set up there where you got Sam Hinkie just treating players like pawns on a chessboard and never valued the human interaction whatsoever. And it is difficult because you've got these GMs that, you know, their sort of job is, I guess, we don't want to get too close to the players and we don't want to have that sort of human interaction with them because we've got to make difficult decisions uh, about that's going to affect their careers at some point. And then you've got the other part where the coaches have got to all be about human interaction. And it's it's a difficult mix to get right. And Popovich, 
I think the way Popovich and Arsa Buford worked hand in hand and really just having, again, having everyone within the organisation have some sort of voice and some, and, and some, you know, some contribution uh, to what's going on there. I think that's part of the success. So that that's the difficult balancing act that I think Popovich and a lot of people, I mean, even Peter Holt, for example, uh, as the owner of the Spurs, I mean, everyone sort of, fed into that that what it's not just Popovich himself and you get the perfect player that like Tim Duncan to sort of complement that etc so there's a lot of different factors that go into success like that and I'm sure you know Eric Spolstra for example he's probably going to smash this record does um you know because he's I think he's already at 600 wins and Popovich at the same age was at 100 wins so I mean yeah but even with with someone like Spolstra there's a lot of different things that go into that success but I just can't understand these other franchises. You're trying to build something that works and you've got Miami and San Antonio that have just been this, you know, so consistently successful across the past really 40 years. And obviously the Spurs are a little bit down at the moment, uh, but Miami are back up there again. Um, but, it, you know, it is difficult, isn't it? And, and then do you think that's one of the parts that makes it most difficult is that, you know, the, the sort of competing uh, elements of the front office and, and, the, and the coaching staff and they're not quite, quite getting, not, not sort of getting that right? Yeah, that's a part of it for sure. But, you know, go back to what we've talked about quite a lot is that, you know, a lot of the ownership, uh, these billionaires didn't get to their positions by having high degrees of emotional intelligence and relationship building. They got to their positions either by you know, just by, um, by royalty, they were, you know, born into riches and wealth, or they got there by um, stabbing, climbing, clawing, out competing um, their way to some venture capital, you know, victory or property development or whatever corporate raid, right, and parlayed into, you know, billions of dollars to sit atop these little kingdoms. And so ergo, when their view of what success looks like is their own self, self-anointed, self-taught way, which is so often the case, right? That very, very infrequently, or that frequently then trickles down to the way that their clubs are, are managed, right? And managed and led. And so I just don't sense a temerity of, of ownership to want to try and find, uh, you know, a, a steady, um, you know, I'll, I'll use the word spiritual, but people who believe in running basketball operations in a way that's bigger than basketball operations and having deeper philosophies. They're counting gate sales, they're counting victories, and they're counting how many press releases they win, right? That's their measures of success, right? You know, of course, the, you know, asset accumulation of the franchise values. And so that's where it begins. It's just, you know, so little patience and so little mindset and so little skill of the owners to permeate that down to their into the organizations. And then secondarily, right? Similarly, like, you know, where are the, where are those skill sets? You know, when, when most of the, these, you know, coaching trees and success models are, you know, you know, former players or, um, or players, again, coaches have to climb and claw and do everything they can to get to these, these positions. And, and then when you even you get great humans in these roles, if they don't win, Daz, it's the other thing. It's great if you win, but, Spolster would have been shit canned, you know, years ago, you know, if he hadn't, you know, if LeBron had turned an ankle and they only won one title or something, or, you know, um, Mike Budenholzer wouldn't have been shit canned in Atlanta if they'd actually won. Like, mm. so this does come down to, 
is still a, a game of wins and losses in dollars and cents. And so I think there'll be patience for these things if winning follows. Um, but that's what I think is probably the bigger, the well, bigger conversation. I, think, that- I mean, the final point on the sort of organizational makeup, I think some of those owners, you've got to realize that you're not always the smartest person in the room and, and delegation is part of it. actually just sitting back and saying, look, let the basketball people run the basketball areas of the organization rather than trying to get your hands on in, in involvement in, in too much, which we see across the league. But let's, Let's go back and, and broaden out a bit, Daz, and look at the chronology a little bit of, of Popovich's career, if you're able to indulge me uh, a little bit today as, as we celebrate the milestone victory yesterday. Uh, and go back, I mean, and, and you talk about winning and losses, wins and losses, and Popovich had his own little moment where things were, he was under pressure uh, in that 99 season when they won their first title. And Australian fans have a bit of a complicated relationship dating back to then. Uh, with Greg Popovich, because I'm not sure if you remember, but in that 99 season, Andrew Gaze, the greatest Australian basketball ever, was on the, the Spurs roster. And as Australian fans watching the NBA from afar, we always wanted to see Gaze on a good team in the NBA because we were convinced that he would be uh, a, a solid contributor within the NBA. And I still think, you know, if, if Gaze came around in today's NBA, I think he'd be a lot more valuable than probably what he, what he was then. Uh, but we thought Spurs, perfect. Like, they've got these two big guys. They need a, they need that extra uh, three-point shooter. And he was giving the minutes to Jaron Jackson at that point. And Spurs, and, and Australian basketball fans were like, what is going on? Why, why can't Andrew Gaze get off the bench over this uh, Jaron Jackson? I remember Cram, our mutual friend, said to me at one point, he said, who do you think knows better about basketball, Greg Popovich or Darren Clear? And at that stage, Popovich, we didn't know much about him other than that, you know, he was an assistant in Golden State for a while. He installed himself after firing Bob Hill. And I also sort of thought, well, actually, I think I might know a bit more about I'm not convinced <laughs> Popovich does know what he's doing there. And, of course, they go on and win the title. You know, Jared Jackson hit some big shots. Uh, in that time, and Gay's got his ring, thankfully, but was really a bit player and, you know, almost a squad player uh, within that team. But then Popovich went on from there. But, I mean, what are your memories of Popovich? And I know, you know, particularly after the Lakers had that three-year run and then the Spurs win three in five years, but uh, were not the most beloved franchise across the NBA in that period. I mean, what are your memories of that sort of period of the Spurs when they had the, the, the biggest run of success in the Popovich era? Well, it was a tale of um, you know, tale of extremes, right? It was the, you know, it was the, the you know, anyone who could stand up to um, the despicable Lakers, right? The way you guys did, you know, were you know, were cheered from the sidelines, right? So that was always, you know, that was always fun to kind of, this is the team who's standing up to Shaq and Kobe. And, um, you know, when the, the cheating 0.4 seconds happens, you know, it, it just sort of, you do question, you know, um, you question yourself and you question the NBA fiber of, of morality and fairness. And so, I, you know, you know, hearts, hearts would bleed and, you know, fingernails dug into plenty of of um, foreheads when things like that happen so you're very much sensing and seeing this um this kind of quiet power rising up against the bloody coastal teams but then of course right by the other token this that had been probably well established by the time you then became the foil to my beloved sons who've always been my second favorite team right and the 
you know, just to kind of the, the grind, the irresistible, the irresistible force that you guys were, um, you know, kind of the anti-beautiful basketball, like the rough and Bruce Bowen and the hip checking and the Rob Ori and the, you know, the really, really physical play, right? Just sort of seeing, you're basically reminded me of, you know, the eighties, you know, bad boys of Lane Beer and, 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 and Mahorn and just this, kind of borderline dirty physical just not basketball and so then to come full circle again right to then go 10 years later so i'm kind of stretching your timeline out a bit Des, and to resurrect into again perhaps the most beautiful basketball humanity's ever seen in the in the revenge year was that 14 or 15 i forget i forget my years but the yeah. year you yeah 14 when you eviscerated you know miami four games to one a year after you probably suffered one of the most heart-wrenching finals losses you could imagine, like in 2013, facing the end of a dynasty, um, to lose in game six to the Ray Allen, then lose a crushing game seven to Timmy Duncan, kind of that little five-foot, six-foot jump hook that just didn't fall, right? Just these, this, the finest, of finest of margins, to then to, to have the ultimate revenge tour, not just a revenge tour, but then a revenge tour of just near perfect basketball if not the most perfect basketball we'll see so sorry i know you asked about the early years but it was kind of hard not to connect the whole yeah the well whole I mean, story they, they for me. morphed didn't they and i mean i think popovich morphed himself to, to a degree because yeah in those years when 03 really through 07 it was about beating the evil empire and it became whatever it takes was the mentality when they stepped on the court yeah, I think off the court, the philosophies were still the same about sort of um, the personal style of leadership that Pop would bring to the to the franchise. But on the court, obviously, it looked very different to what it did in, you know, in, in those later years in the 2014 and even how they play today. Uh, but it really was about, you know, we've got to beat LA and Popovich. I, I get the sense there's not too many people Popovich doesn't get along with in the NBA. One of them's Phil Jackson and the other one is uh, Jerry Colangelo. So there's only two guys I know of that Pop's not all that fond of. So seeing Phil win those three titles in a row and then saying that the Spurs had the asterisk title in 99 and things like that, that really rubbed the franchise the wrong way. So when they were doing that, when they, particularly in 07, I think was the most egregious example of, of what happened with Phoenix. Spurs fans were like, who cares? Like, we've just got to, it's just, we've got to win. Like, it doesn't matter. And that was the mentality that was drilled in us just for that hatred of the Lakers and then the Kobe and Shaq era uh, and getting past that. So, um, but I, we fully understood that, you know, the Lakers were probably the most hated team in the league and we were maybe second most hated uh, through those years. But um, as long as we weren't as, as badly hated as the Lakers, we were probably okay with it. Uh, and again, whatever it took. And yeah, the big victory I remember is 03 when they when the Spurs just obliterated the Lakers. And everyone sort of says, oh, the Lakers, it was finished in 04 when, when the Pistons, they were done in 03. Like, and Derek Fisher crying on the bench and things like that. Like that, that was the great moment for, for Spurs fans and Duncan really taking over. But then when I say sort of pop morphed as well, yeah, the, that run the Spurs had really from 2011 through to when Zaza undercuts uh, Kawhi in 2016. I mean, that is as good a run of basketball that you'll see from a, from a franchise. I think they made the conference finals every year uh, bar one. 
or bar, bar one or two, I think one or two years they didn't make it, but they were one or two seed every single year, you know, consistently winning high 50s, low 60s games and just playing a beautiful style of basketball that was, you know, the envy of the rest of the league. So that was, and, and within that, I think then Pop sort of morphed more into this sort of social commentator as well and, and dipped his toe in a few of the sort of political issues that were going on in America, which is obviously pretty difficult to do in, the deep red state of Texas. Uh, so, but he was, he became a real sort of warrior on um, social justice issues within the US as well and became beloved because of that. So he sort of rose above this, you know, the curmudgeon that he was in those sort of sideline uh, interviews he used to have with Craig Sager back in the day. And then he and Craig Sager actually would, ended up being close as well. So it, it sort of came full circle from this team that was that sort of military regimented, boring whatever it takes style to that we're going to show everyone the beauty of basketball and and what this game can look like at its highest level and its most purest form and i think that really them three games the final three games of that miami series that's when it came together in just a perfect symphony of uh, beautiful passing basketball and that's that's what i think will be pop's legacy that and all the personal relationships and and the sort of Popovich mafia that's left behind within the, within the NBA and the breadcrumbs that are left, um, you know, from the, his style of leadership and the way he's gone about it across the NBA days. So, look, any any final thoughts before we we move on from from Popovich? But look, it's a it, it's a great moment for the Spurs, and as I said, I, I've gotten as much enjoyment, it might sound silly, Daz, I've really enjoyed watching this, the Spurs this year, even though they've lost a lot of games and at times it's been very frustrating. But um, to, to see the way Popovich has, has embraced this young team and actually understands where the franchise is at and, and, and you know, at, at times, dare I say, has put lineups in these games late that um, hasn't given the Spurs the best chance to win because it's probably better for us to get a good draft pick. But I mean, what, what's your sort of final thoughts on, on the Popovich legacy and, and, and everything that Popovich has done across the last 25 plus years? Well, the, the, clearly the last chapter is left to be written, whether that's this year or next year or a few years, right? I think there'll be a very interesting um, chapter to be about who he passes the mantle to in terms of coaching and what happens with the franchise. So that will be fascinating to sort of see unfold, but, that's probably my other reflection just on passing the mantle is that there's going to be so few examples of this because just the nature of the player empowerment era. But what, again, back to maybe bringing back to the very beginning principles about relationships and trust building and how that relates to franchise building and wins and losses is that, can you imagine just how difficult and delicate it is to have an all-time great superstar like Tim Duncan and to watch him and to coach him every single day and with the, the joint mutual acknowledgement that his skills are fading and his skills will decline. And to go from a very Tim Duncan, you know, almost heliocentric type of offense, everything running through him in the post or the high post, right? Obviously the defensive anchor to over time, right? That became kind of became Tony Parker's team. And then times Manu's team where Tim was a support player, right? And, you know, he was a much lower usage type of player. And so I think that's another really under discussed very very unique thing which of course takes a two-way it takes willingness by the superstar to want to do that but by a coach to be able to navigate the egos and navigate the x's and o's and and both at the same time respect and revere 
you know, what someone like Tim has accomplished, but, you know, eventually moving more and more responsibilities and spotlight and therefore accolades into the hands of the other players is just very, very unique. You don't see Michael Jordan putting the franchise above himself. You never saw Kobe put the franchise above himself, right? You never see LeBron James put a franchise over himself. No, very, so, I mean, it does take two to do that, right? There's no superstars who put the franchise ahead of themselves. You know, we're, you know, halfway through a career with Giannis, who might be the closest thing who might, you know, we have no idea. He could just, he could bolt in 18 months as far as we know. So I'm saying it might be very, very difficult to have this conversation ever again, but how do you actually pass the mantle and sustain a culture for so long by taking your superstar and, and, and having his presence and his skills both diffuse the organization? I think that's also something that should, should be probably discussed more and will be discussed more the more that we hear, hopefully the more we hear from him in retirement, just about what that was like and, and how delicate that was. Because I can bet you, Daz, maybe you know more stories than I do. I can bet that was not always the easiest thing to do. So that for me is also quite something to be respected. Yeah, look, I think Duncan was the perfect personality to have. And I know when, uh, before they even drafted Duncan, uh, Popovich went to the Virgin Islands and uh, spent some time with, with Duncan and his family and they formed a bond there, which really sort of survived that period that they had together. And obviously, you know, the Spurs were very, very fortunate to be getting that number one pick and, you know, not to sort of, um, again, rehash the past sure. when they got those injuries, etc. So it was just a perfect situation, the perfect play to land in San Antonio. And, uh, you know, the fact that, and everyone sort of said this, as soon as they walked in the door of that organisation, as soon as they understood that Tim Duncan was not put on this pedestal and that Pop was going to coach him as hard as he coached everyone else, that just allowed everyone the knowledge that I'm not, you know, yeah, Pop's going to ride me, but Pop's going to ride everyone and, and we expect the best out of you. Uh, no matter whether your name's Tim Duncan or, you know, Fabrizio Alberto or whoever it might be uh, coming through. So that that sort of set up that culture uh, and the way that things done. And when the, you know, and if you have an honest, I mean, the final point I'll make is when you have an honest uh, environment and you have that sort of human-centered leadership, it makes the conversations you need to have with Tim Duncan, well, we're going to wind your role back a bit and, and you know, or so if someone's going to be traded or whatever the, you know, whatever the situation or circumstance might be, those conversations become easier the more that sort of trust and, and honesty is developed within an organization over time. So I think then, again, that's really the legacy and every story that you hear about Popovich that's what it's about it's about those human interactions that he's had with people and just the value that he places on those and and the meals and and the wine and you know going out and, and enjoying each other's company and they're the moments I think and that's you know at the end of the day that's what sport's about uh, you know, it, it, yes, the winning and losing is fantastic. And from a fan's point of view, that's what we watch. But within these organisations, that's what's really valuable um, for them to look back on over time. So, uh, we'll, and, and look, and we'll see where it goes from there. My view on Pop when he retires, I think he'll go to the Napa Valley somewhere, does, and get his own winery. And we, he won't be doing too many interviews. Um, he'll be down there with, um, with uh, Rick Myra. Uh, running his own, <laughs> own winery uh, in the Napa Valley. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know. Probably so. Yeah. His winery. I follow all ex-Bears quarterbacks very closely, Daz. Uh, so, 
let's let's move on there to some of the other sort of games that have taken place. And I want to leave uh, the the Sixers Nets game last, and we'll, we'll have some of our takeaways from that. That's but a bit more of an anti Livingston moment, does. Uh, but you caught the game today between um, Golden State and, and Milwaukee. Maybe we'll start there. I mean. If I had said to you before the game, look, Daz, here, Steph gets eight points today. Uh, you're signing up for that. And how confident are you in a Bucks victory? Yeah, pretty, feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope he didn't get hurt, right? Yeah, he played 30-odd um, minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, of course he did. Yeah, and that's, that's the beauty of, of Steph Curry. I almost talk about the parallel to, to um, Tim Duncan might be Steph Curry, right, when he, you know, made room for Kevin Durant this few years, but um, yeah, no, um, sadly for Bucks fans, this was the Clay Thompson game and, and probably in triumphant um, fashion for Dubs fans who've waited now a month or so or, or longer for him to do something beyond chuck it up like, uh, like a Jordan Clarkson. Uh, the Golden State Circus was back today, Daz. Um, first quarter was, you know, welcome Tessa, I think it's 28-28. After the first quarter and the second quarter was just cue the music because it was like um, it was Benny Hill music where Jonathan Kaminga has five offensive rebounds in the quarter. Clay Thompson's throwing in 34 footers, Jordan Poole's slicing in for easy buckets. It was just the, the Golden State Circus was back in full effect and Draymond and, and Steph were both on the bench, you know, literally waving towels and uh, that the game was pretty much over after that and the second half wasn't, it wasn't a contest. It was clearly one team was celebrating and um, their home crowd and they were clearly wanting the game more than, than the Bucks by that point, but a, a well-earned and very easily earned victory for, you know, for the dubs today. And I think Clay ended up 15 for 24 <laughs> from, from the field when he probably was 15 for 64 in the, in the previous game. So certainly what I've seen of him was, as we talked about before, just this oddly high usage just kind of doesn't pass the ball at all, comes off the of screens and shoots, pin down and shoots, show and go and shoots. He's just been chucking Daz. And so um, maybe there's been method to this madness. We hypothesize, we go, maybe this is just about him getting repetitions. And uh, sadly today, it all came together where he just couldn't miss. And his quick release was back, you know, that, that instant flick, you know, he'd catch it two feet, you know, in the corner where you feel like he's hopping the man, not go out of bounds and he, he'll catch it and flick it in one motion and, you know, and drill it. So it was uh, all about clay, all about clay today, dad. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even need to mention the, the boxes. Nope. Mm -hmm. yeah. I get the sense, sorry, just on clay. I, I get That's the okay. sense that he's going to be able to do that one game out of every four, you know, for the rest of this season and maybe one game out of every five, even like, uh, you know, the, and the defense drop off has been a real concern as well for for Golden State, but I think Draymond being out exacerbates that as well. I still get the sense that Golden State are going to be more dangerous next year to some extent than this year, and, and again, it depends on how much gas has, has Steph got left in the tank for another championship run next year. But I, I, while it's a great story today, and it's great to see Clay have the third, what was a thirty eight points I think he had in the end on ridiculously efficient shooting. Uh, I'm not sure that we're going to see that consistently uh, up towards the end of this season. And, and even in the playoff series, you might see two games at best where Clay's playing really well. And then there might be three or four games where you wonder, 
you know, is he almost better just sitting on the bench at times? Um, and, and you're going with Jordan Poole, Kaminga and, and, and Wiggins, et cetera, in those sort of wing roles. So that's going to be the question, I think. And, and I still think they'd just love to get him through this season, not, not re-aggravate any injuries and be ready to go for next season. That's the sort of sense that I get. And maybe get some reps into Moody and, and more into Kaminga and even Wiseman's back next year and then they can have a red-hot crack at it. Uh, maybe for the next couple of years, while Steph's still got something that left to offer as well. Yeah, I think that it felt like it was very much a regular season game. You could, there was no real game plan. You know, Giannis wasn't, they weren't doing things to kind of free Giannis up. It was very much a regular, a regular season game, let's put it that way, which again, they're, they're tiny, right? The Golden State was tiny, but they were just throwing all their, all their athletes. I mean, Kaminga and, and Wiggins were just, you know, flying to the hoop and just ch- chasing down boards, which you just you just wouldn't see against a, you know, a typical you know a typical defense in a, in a playoff series. But but yeah, so I, whether that's uh, one in four games, you know, I think for for Clay's performance, I suppose that would be the hope. Um, uh, but again, he he'd only played how much did he play today? Let me just check the. I thought he just played in spurts. He'd only been averaging 24 minutes a game. Yeah, 34 I he had minutes over 30 today. minutes today when I checked. 34, yeah. 34 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's but that might that's be his biggest cooking today as well. Oh, he was he was definitely cooking, but again, no free throw attempts, right? So he's you know, it's as a just a proxy for it. It was a very, let's say a very much a regular season kind of game. There was no the Bucks well, were doing anything different or adjusting to you know to the fact he was cooking. But well, we, um, but that does not take away his performance. I mean they Let's focus on the Levinson, which is right. Mm-hmm. This guy hadn't played for two and a half years, and you know, have we just seen last week walking off the court in frustration? And then, you know, last time we talked was about this high usage, bizarre world. So you know, at least the old clay is in there somewhere, right? So can he do this the way Kevin Durant's been doing for you know since he's come back? We'll see. But at least mm-hmm. old clay is still there. It's you know, he's not like an Oladipo where you just never, ever see old Oladipo, right? That's what you always hoped that didn't happen. You just hope that these injuries didn't put him down a path where, gosh, he's just not the same athlete anymore. But glimpses of where he's, you know, he might still be that guy. If only relegated to the perimeter, again, he didn't, he didn't take it to the basket at all. He kind of didn't need to. But again, it's, uh, it just, it was like he was playing horse today, Dallas, but it was... Um, Certainly fun for the fans. Yeah, well, I still think he could get it back. Uh, but as I said, I, I don't, I, I don't think it'll happen this year. But it, it could happen next year. I mean, he was always the good thing, I guess, for Clay is he's he was always sort of the most overqualified. You know, when KD was there, he's sort of third, fourth string sort of option that they had within that team. And I would have loved to have seen him at times, you know, run the team for himself back when he was healthy, because I think there was just so much sort of untapped potential that we didn't see from Clay. And we saw glimpses of it actually in that Toronto final series when when KD went down, if you remember, and you thought, oh my God, Clay's just taken over this game. And then Clay goes down and Golden State ended up that sort of imploded from there and they're getting back on their feet now. So I still think we're going to see yeah, better play, and I think he's going to get better and better as time goes on. But it's probably not going to be until next season when we're really going to know can he bring it night to night uh, as they needed to do, um, or even is he going to be a, a, a Kawhi Leonard type, which says I'm not going to play back to backs, but I can give you 60 games across the season at a high level. 
And that's what the Golden State will be hoping for the most. My Livingston moment does happen yesterday. And I, you know, I got a little bit overexcited about uh, the, my latest team I've adopted, the Detroit Pistons. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I watched the almost the entirety of this game. The Detroit go into Boston. And Boston, as you know, have been the, the hottest team in the NBA. They've got the hottest player in the NBA, Jason Tatum. And you could just tell that Cade Cunningham had an edge to him and was like, I'm going to come in and make a statement in this game. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with Tatum and I'm going to see if we, you know, if we can pull this one out. And for three quarters, they were just trading haymakers back and forth. And, and Cade had, I think, 27, 8 and 5 to three-quarter time. Tatum had just, just under that. I think he was around 26 points, but not the assists or rebounds. And Cade was just doing everything, Daz. And this is the best defense in the NBA and they got a couple of steals on him. Like they were trying to pick him up at full court. Like they were not making it easy on him. Like they're just bulldogs, this, this Boston Celtics team at the moment on that perimeter. Mm-hmm. You've all thrown Grant Williams, Marcus Smart, Derek White, you know, Jalen Brand. Everyone's having a go at Cade and just harassing him. And he just, the game's already slowed down for him and he's, he's tall enough where he can see over the defense and he's just patient and he just lets the play develop. And then he picked, he was picking him apart and it was just beautiful to watch. And occasionally you just get a glimpse of these rookies. And then we've seen it with Mobley. You know, I think, I think Scotty Barnes is going to be a really good player, but I don't think he has this, the ceiling of, of Cade or, or that Mobley does. And I mean, even Jalen Green had a moment last week against the, um, the reeling LA Lakers, but Cade showing me now, this guy really has some like superstar potential uh, within the next couple of years. And I just, I love the mentality of Cade to go into Boston, accept the challenge and say, I'm going to take this on head on. And look, they faded in the last. And to be fair, Cade wasn't very good in that fourth quarter as Boston got on top. But Boston are, are rolling for a reason at the moment. And I'll get to Boston in a moment. But I'll ask you first, I mean, have you caught any of Cade Cunningham? Because by gee, I was impressed with him there. And he actually had a really good game against Atlanta. Uh, earlier on in the week as well in a nice win for the Pistons. Yeah, only in chunks, Daz. But what I the only thing I can probably add to it is is the what's unique about Cade is that he's the game isn't too fast for him, right? Where in fact he he seems to understand and control and create tempo. That's what feels so impressive about him is that he doesn't let the other team dictate right? He's got that, whatever that is, these, the, the mental strength, the perspective, the, the confidence, and of course, the ball in his hands to kind of just calm everyone down and stay the course and for his team to continue to, to play the way they've been coached and the way they've been practiced. That's what's I just, I, can't, I probably can't point to moments, Daz, but that's what I feel when I see him play. You know, it's almost even, there's even, it's, I guess, a little Luca-like, right? You know, Luca plays a little more frenzied, a little more shoot first. But, you know, with Luca or with Chris Paul, the master, right? There's that sense of no matter what happens, you know, put the ball in their hands and, you know, good decisions are going to follow. And that's what I feel from Kate. Now, again, you've probably seen him play more. I don't know if that's, that kind of aligns with what you're seeing. That's kind of what you're saying, but that's mm-hmm. what pops about him it's just that yeah i got this everyone don't worry 
Well, it's got this, and that's thing. contagious. The game's slowing down, and, the, and you watch go and watch Jalen Suggs, and the Suggs just has not caught up to the space of the NBA yet because he was used to dominating at that college level, and you know it's just been it's it's been too fast for him. That's how it feels watching him. He's just not he's not used to the pace. He's not used to that level yet. Uh, from a from a playmaking point of view or from a shot making point of view, whereas Cade within his first season the game's already slowed down for him and he's found the pace of the game that he needs to be. And as I said, he can pick teams apart uh, based on that. So I think that the, the the future looks so bright for him and let's see who they pair him with because they're going to have a nice draft pick again this year. Um, and I'm fascinated to see uh, who they pair him with. But I've got to tell you too, Des, I was equally impressed with, with the Celtics and the Celtics just look a different team to me than what they looked earlier on the season when their defensive metrics have always been good across the season. But you, you kind of felt it was a bit of smoke and mirrors at different times, particularly when their record wasn't that great. But the ball movement now, and combined with the defense, I'll tell you what, they're, they're starting to make me question how, how far they can go in this Eastern Conference when you look at all these teams and they've got a few warts. And I love what Imidoku said and he just said, yeah, they've finally bought into the ball movement and the commitment to defense that I've asked for. And he was calling him out game after game after game and credit to Brad Stevens for allowing him to call these guys out and just say, no, I, you know, and because that that's a challenge for a franchise because you've got a first year coach, you've got these players that weren't buying into what he's trying to do. And sometimes there's a gut check moment. And we saw it in Miami when, when LeBron was there first year of Spolstra and Pat Riley pulled them aside and said, guys, this guy's the coach. You got to buy into what he's trying to get you to do. And I think that now, whether that conversation happened or whether they just got sick of Adoku saying the same things. And again, I think the Derek White part has helped that, that on the offensive side and it certainly hasn't hurt their defense, but I would, I think that was just spoke wonders to me, Daz, that Adoku was given the reign to just call these guys out and keep putting the pressure on them and saying, no, this is the way I want us to play and this is the way you are going to play. And now we're seeing the benefits of it. I mean, how seriously are you starting to take the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference? Very. It's just a shame that 74% of the national media are, are you know, went to journalism school in, in Massachusetts. And you just, you just, I'm just so sick of them being filleted for every, every piece of news, Daz. So mm. it's just, it's, I'm just, I'm, I'm a broken record. Kind of like watching a nationally televised game where it's always from the perspective of the, of the, of the big market team, which is these things you just have to, I'll never like it, but I'll, you know, I'll probably never get over it at the same time. Um, but so sorry for the rant, but yeah, very seriously. I said it the first time, first couple games I saw after Derek White and I stick to it was what they I mean Udoka yeah I think that's probably right but I'm sorry Derek White gives them an identity he completes the team they were missing they were missing him they were missing that point guard because they still were turning to Pritchard and to name your backup guard who they've overdrafted underdeveloped misrep misallocated their skill set misread the Kemba Walker guy like they've just completely botched that position for five six years in a row Derek White gives him identity it's everything snaps into place and and um I think you've already intimating it but 
defense is what won the Bucks the title. Yes, you need to have the probably the best player in the um, on the floor in, in Giannis, but defense is what's going to carry Boston through the Eastern Conference Finals or beyond. It wasn't ever going to be, and probably never will be, bleeping um, Jason Tatum's shot making ISO game. It's not going to be. It's mm-hmm. going to be their defense which rises their floor, raises their floor significantly. That for me is the problem with Boston's. Their floor could get so low because you're relying on Tatum um, to do his thing and he's not a playmaker. He does not make everyone around him better, but guess what he can do? He can fucking score. Just ask him to be a scorer. Stop asking him to be the alpha playmaker. Get him to buy in on defense and now you've got, now you've got a chance. So absolutely dead serious because their their defense is so good that raises their floor very very high. Where you just cannot whether that's um, a, a full force flexing Giannis or if James Harden went into a time machine and went back seven years and lost twenty kilos or a, a highly optimized Philadelphia team, Boston will fear nobody because they've got that to rely upon. So you've got a great defense and you've got scores on the other end. Absolutely. I would, I would be brimming with confidence that they may not be favored to come out of the East, but they would also, you know, boy, they're going to have a puncher's chance against anybody. Mm. Well, they're starting to make makes a, me want to. Yeah. Well, Sorry, they're starting ahead. to make a believer out of me, Daz. Uh, and I find some of these Eastern conference cont- contenders are falling by the way. So let, let's get to the big game of the past week. Because one team that uh, is, I have zero belief in after what I saw uh, on on uh, fr- on was it Friday or Saturday? Uh, I think Friday. The, yeah, there was only the two games on, so it was the Friday in Australia on Australian yeah. time. Uh, the Sixers and the Nets. Uh, the Sixers to me are done. I, I they they may as well just pack it up, Daz, and I don't, I don't know what <laughs> what do you even do with their franchise after that before but so look it, it's one game in the loss column it, it is a regular season game but of course it's so much more than that and having seen teams that win championships having seen teams that are being contenders i mean even outside of san Antonio, you're like you've got to have and we spoke about this last week you know when they punted on that miami game and it's just like this is why this team's never won anything this is why we believe this team never will win anything because they they think they're better they've got this unearned confidence they think they're better than what they are. They think they can punt away a game against the number one team in the conference. They're now, I think you're going to see them try and tank their way out of even competing for the number two suit. I don't think they want any part of that two V7 matchup. I think they'd prefer, much prefer to fall into the three and four seed uh, and avoid the Nets altogether because they don't want any part of the Brooklyn Nets. And I don't think they want any part of the Milwaukee Bucks or Miami, to be honest. I'm not sure who they who they th- what they think their pathway is going to be to get out of the Eastern Conference, but um, for those that might be living under a rock and missed it, obviously they they hosted the Nets. Ben Simmons return game, uh, James Harden, small game James as he's been uh, aptly named after this one's great nickname. Uh, he just totally shit the bed three of seventeen. Embiid look Embiid had a go and and sort of you know five or seventeen from the field, but he was alone in hand. Very much Tyrese Maxey, who you know Philly media were trying to suggest was all NBA level player. I think at one point he was two of seven from the field for four points. 
Tobias Harris was invisible, although I, I have some sympathy for Tobias Harris because I don't think they've done anything for his confidence this year and sort of the way that, uh, that, that they've used him and then treated him within the team. But the moment, Daz, that stood out to me in the absolute beatdown, it was a 30-point win in the end for the Brooklyn Nets, was a moment towards the end of the first quarter when KD and, and Embiid got into it after Embiid got fouled and was going to the line. And Embiid was like the school bully that's normally got all these you know, underlings behind him and, and feels really tough and sort of... And this is not necessarily a knock on Embiid as being a bully, but it's more like Embiid halfway through that rant sort of looked around and thought, I don't think I've got anyone on this team I can go in the trenches with. You know, and, and Durant's looking around. Durant's got Kyrie. Okay, say what you like about Kyrie. He's an unbelievably talented player and he's won a title. Paddy Mills has won a title. Uh, you know, and then they've got Seth Curry, who was who was outstanding in that game. And I think people would trust in a big spot. You know, Steve Nash on the bench, things like this. And you look, and, and Embiid's probably looking around. You know, Harden sort of slunk away towards the back end of the court. As I said, Tobias Harris, just the, the game swallowed him up as it has, as big games have so often in his career. And I just felt that in that moment, you could almost see the look on Embiid's face, like as he just sort of shrunk and, and KD kept going at him verbally, that he was like, what have I got, what have I gotten myself into here? Well, I, I don't have anyone that I feel comfortable in the trenches with. Did you, I mean, did you take the same out of that moment? And what did you take out of the game itself from Philadelphia's point of view? Oh boy, Dad, you're going to have to put a time limit on me here. Yeah. Um, if anyone's ever studied, you know, King Henry VIII and the fact he had what six wives, I think it was, and I don't know how many of them he had beheaded. And but you know, you hear the story from the perspective of an Anne Boleyn or Jane Seymour, his third wife, and you know how heartbroken and how how downtrodden they were because you know they come to find that their beloved King Henry VIII was a an adulterer and a tyrant. Right. And they're just so distraught and, and it leads them to make all kinds of um, irrational decisions. Well, I wonder what Philadelphia 76 are thinking when you, you trade for James Harden, who is a serial quitter, who has been his whole career receding into the background. And when he actually does get a teammate who outshines him, he sulks and makes um, makes a mockery of it. So when, you know, Chris Paul starts to get all the takes over. Chris Paul became the leader of that team in Houston, right? The one that came so close to up, you know, unseating um, Golden State were it not for a Chris Paul ankle injury. Of course, he becomes a bad teammate, right? And the James Harden who couldn't handle playing, you know, with Kevin Durant, couldn't handle playing with it, right? Couldn't handle, as we've come to learn, um, couldn't handle playing one-on-one against Kyrie in practice and getting, you know, getting beaten. Couldn't handle it. So he's going to quit. I go, what do you think you're getting with him? Like he is what he is, what he's always been, right? So I go, what, what's the famous, it's a Denny Green phrase. He is who we think he is, that we are, they are who they thought we are. And I go, anyone who expected anything different either hasn't been paying attention um, or is, is kidding themselves. That's, that's my meta headline. Number two, going back to your kind of the Greg Popovich, I'm going to draw a really thin a thin thread here, Daz. So, you know, let's, let's see how far this goes. But Daryl Morey, how did he get to where he's gotten to in life, right? This is the fat, ugly nerd who's had to, right, kind of be the smartest kid in school to get anything. Always has the answer, 
He's smarter and better than everybody, right? That's how he's gotten to where he's gotten to. And so dare I say, he and James Harden probably have a lot in common. These wickedly insecure men who think they're better than everybody and they're going to surround themselves with other people like them and, and wrap themselves um, in some moral high ground about, right, um, you know, we make the best basketball decisions that maximize our chances for winning some sort of rhetoric. I go, no wonder these are two peas in the pod. And I'm going to very quickly, to your point, become a, a big, um, be a, to sympathetic to Joel Embiid, who's been nothing but trying to be a franchise anchor and a stabilizing force in a franchise who has been so wildly, entertainingly unstable over the past decade that I, you do wonder how much patience Joel is going to have for this for this freaking insecure buddy buddy boy buddy ball circus that comes with um, Daryl Morey and and James Harden. I do not know. So what's it mean for the Philadelphia 76ers? I could probably give a rat's about what happens this year. I think this year is kind of a write-off anyway. They traded away their best support player and Seth Curry got no way to replace him. They got holes all over the place and Harden's overweight. So I think this year is a write-off anyway. Um, so I, I'm not really concerned about this year. I'm concerned about how on earth this team goes, how, how more is going to build a roster and how he's going to build and how is James Harden going to accept the fact unlike case after case after case before him, when he actually realizes when the shine of the new shiny toy, when the shiny new toy, sort of a new kid on the block kind of honeymoon is over, what that's like to live and work in the shadow of Joel Embiid. And for people who are as insecure as James Harden to watch a teammate to be as, as secure in their own skin and as confident on the court as Embiid has, will he wilt again, right? Will he cower and, and get you know uh, a, a mysterious string of hamstring and calf injuries as as Embiid shines and the pressure intensifies or will he you know will he grow up through this process that for me is I'll leave that as a rhetorical but it'd be highly I'm dubious that he's gonna mature his way through this and become you know become the, the wonderful counterpoint that Joel probably does deserve after enduring a Colangelo and a Fultz and a Simmons and now now Doc Rivers and James Harden and just the, what he's had to endure is cruelty. It's just cruelty. Well, so that's it, where I'm at with Philadelphia, Daz. I'm, I'm not even anywhere near my point. It still goes yeah. back, Daz, to my point when the trade was made. And you, you can't convince me. I mean, look, yes, it's nice. And I mean, I think it, it sort of goes to the Nets as well. I think the Nets were wrong for trading for James Harden. I mean, it's it's this star chasing and you know we've got to have another star next to Embiid and that's the way you win the title and it's like there's more than one way to win a title and to me you had to build around Joel Embiid with depth you're in the, you deal the shitty situation with Ben Simmons you had to make the most of it and to me give me some guys that I can go to the wall with I mean I don't care who you're talking about I mean James Harden in big games I'd rather De'Aaron Fox straight up does in that game well, against the Nets than James Harden. Well, yeah, it's pick pick the list of players, right? It's it's the Scotty Pippen, it's the Clay Thompson, it's the Chris Middleton, right? Mm. It's Kevin McHale. It's the you want your number two to have any Chris Bosch, right? Your number two 
to have an elite skill set, but it has to be complementary and it has to be secondary. And nor if it has to be an elite skill set, but it has to be in a, like an unquestioned way. You know, Kobe and Shaq's probably the one unique double alpha situation, but you know that still didn't last very long, right? But um, that's what you know. That's what people like Daryl Morey do not understand. I think you're saying the exact same thing, right? Is get yourself. Who is the, I don't know who the Chris Middleton or the Clay Thompson for Joel is or who was available. That's a totally different conversation. But under no circumstance is it going to be James Harden. It's just not ever going to be. He only he he's an alpha who wants the ball and he wants unquestioned Henry VIII kind of power and unquestioned um, support from everyone around him. Or he'll he'll make you feel like you're not loyal and you're not you know, serving the franchise best interest. He'll just gaslight you into believing that you're the problem or he'll just you know, take his toys and run away. So that for me is what, the, 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 you're right, the complete misstep was was not recognizing that you can get a second best player and win a title and not have it be another buddy alpha. Well, I mean, the only good thing for Philly is I think when he turns up out of the shape to start next season and starts pouting again, there'll be another franchise that will talk themselves into James freaking Harden as, as he's called on, on NBA Twitter, because uh, apparently step backs are more important than showing up in big games uh, across the course of your career. So that's the yeah. only sort of silver lining. I, I think they can still move on from him um, assuming. And, and, and I guess there's also the question of the contract, etc. cetera. Uh, but I mean, I'll be stunned if this plays out any other way than them making an embarrassing playoff exit this year. And that's going to start rolling in again, heading into next year. I'll be stunned if it ends in any other way than James Harden and Russell Westbrook being traded for each other. And so you have Harden and AD, the two biggest babies in the entire league, sucking on both of LeBron's teats. And LeBron convincing himself, well, Harden can't be worse than Russ. (laughs) Or can he? (laughs) <laughs> well at least Russ you know he's going to turn up every game you probably just hope some nights he, you'd prefer him not to turn up uh, given how badly he's played this year yeah, but, but, yeah. there's never a question of Russ's intensity or his effort uh, it's just he has uh, visions of grandeur that he's telling yeah and he's never won anything either has he oh no no I was just going to pile on poor Russ who's gotten all <laughs> prickly and sensitive about the nickname of you know he's now called um, Westbrook, yeah, and they got all sensitive about oh, it's a family name and it, it's an insult to me and my heritage and my my father gave me this this his name as a proud and he got all like, all high minded and and pity self pity around a, what could only be described as maybe the most mild nickname one could ever endow on a player making forty seven million dollars a year you know, in Westbrook, and he got all sensitive about it, which is all I need to hear about where his head is at. He is not, he's not in a good headspace, and that, that chugga-chugga well, train wreck, hopefully. That's an OKC legacy, does. I mean, that's that's a team that was very uh, sort of wrapped up in cotton wool in that small market, and they are just, like Harden, Durant, and Westbrook. Immune from criticism. That's just a really good point. Immune from criticism. Yeah cannot accept any criticism, cannot accept any, any negativity, uh, and, and are you know, fully engaged on all of that social media nonsense where if you, if you are, you know, if, if you are sort of feel you should be immune from criticism or you are very touchy about criticism, it's probably a good idea to start off social media uh, because, you know, you just can't be so 
so touchy about these things. Um, and, you know, Westbrook, I think, is, is rightfully criticised for his poor play this year. What about before we go, Daz? I'll quick, get you a quick take on, on the net side of things. Look, yes, it's nice that the Nets had, had this win and Durant looked fantastic and, and Kyrie looks great. But I still think, look, until we can get a, a something definitive that Kyrie can play every game, I can't take this team seriously uh, as, as a potential title team. You don't you don't take Brooklyn seriously? Is that what the assertion well? That's is? until I know Kyrie can play every game. I mean, if 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 you're saying to me Kyrie's can still can't play mm. home games, we're going to go into these series. I mean, seriously, you're going to go in against Milwaukee in round two, and you go, yeah, but Kyrie can play all all four games in Milwaukee. Okay, you're going to sweep the Bucks in Milwaukee because I can't see you beating Milwaukee in Brooklyn. Maybe you beat Miami. Uh, sorry, Milwaukee once out of three without Kyrie in Brooklyn. And I think that's a stretch. I don't think you're beating Milwaukee four times uh, in Wisconsin, does. So no, unless I can get yeah. something that Kyrie can play every game, uh, I, I can't take the Nets seriously. And I'm, they may not even get out of the plane because they're going to have to play in Toronto without Kyrie. And if they lose that, they'll be at home again without Kyrie against maybe a frisky sort of Atlanta or, you know, um, Charlotte, I, I, I wouldn't take as seriously Atlanta. But if Atlanta can bring their A game, but that's a difficult game as well for them. Yeah, look, I I agree. Like it's because Kyrie is probably because now we've seen how good he is, um, and when he chooses to get locked in on defense, mm. um, he can you know muscle up and chest up likes of, of Harden. So when he has got that personal fire to want to play D, he, he's capable. He's not going to be mistaken for Marcus Smart or Drew Holiday, but he's capable, right? Pretty physical, um, pretty physical dude. But yeah, I'm with you. Like, you just can't. If Giannis can score 50 against Aiton, Bridges, and Crowder, I'm pretty sure he can score 50 against Durant, Claxton, and Bruce Brown, right? Mm -hmm. I think you, you need you need Kyrie's scoring to put the pressure on the Bucks to change the way they play. Well, you're not worried about the Nets throwing Ben no. Simmons at, at Giannis? I am not. He's not ready to Would play. Would you like me to expand? Yeah, we read, we just saw today, I mean, I, um, where poor Steve Nash was, I kind of, maybe I'm starting to like, I've always loved Steve Nash, but, you know, you know he's on this kind of evil empire, but, you know, he's, Steve Nash probably needs to learn to shut his mouth. Like he said a lot. <laughs> in the presser after the game or talking, asking, of course, they're asking about Ben Simmons rather than just shutting it down. He said things, quoting, like literally saying, he's not even ready for um, uh, describing even questions about his back and his injury history. And he's like, no, it's a tweak. I don't know if it's an issue, but it's just a tweak. And he's got a thing and he goes, I don't know. I'm not the doctor, but you know, it's, I wouldn't say he's got a back issue, but he's got a back thing going on and they ask him about okay he's been doing some shooting drills is he already he's like no he's not ready he's not even he's mm. not even ready for it's one on none well every all the language one -on -one about that team is says to me they're not expecting him to play at all like they're just not a, he's not even a or yeah or what they're doing is and this was someone made this comment on one of the pods i, I consumed right after the game i forgot who mentioned it but um, I don't know how much to make of this, Daz, but it could also just be Steve Nash protecting Simmons, right? And just setting such a low bar 
about him. He's just going to put, he's going to make sure there's zero pressure on Ben Simmons from the media because now he's basically setting the bar. Mm. He's just, he's a long, long ways away. And someone had said, yeah, what you will see about what, what KD and, and Kyrie and what Steve Nash had done in Philadelphia the other day, right, when they visited the Sixers, is that they went out of their way to tell Ben to make the play for Ben. But like, he's one of our guys. We're going to go to war for him. And we're going to make this game not about you. So they actually took it personally. They've wrapped their arms around him. And, you know, say what you, so forget Ben Simmons for a minute. But, um, and we'll see how this actually plays out. But you can see that how different that would feel to Simmons, mm. right? And probably no doubt Steve Nash, a fantastic teammate, right? Um, how Steve Nash's probably fingerprints are, are around the situation, which is, He's our guy now. We are going to act and look and feel like a family and as a unit. And so uh, on the downside, you hear, holy shit, Simmons is a long ways away. Why is Steve Nash saying all this? On the plus side, maybe Nash is, knows what he's saying and is just sort of setting such a low bar for us. He's going to give, he's trying to give Simmons some space, just trying to buy him time and buy him space. So um, but back, well, back they, to your question. I mean, look, yeah, just quickly on that point, Daz. I mean, if they go back to Philly within that uh, the, the, within the playoffs, they did some two things I thought that were that were really intelligent in this game. And they send Ben Simmons out, and Penny Mills says, "I'll go out there with you." And I think I just got the sense. I mean, I was watching the live. Yes, that's it. Afterwards, yeah. and Paddy Mills, it was like the crowd were like, "We we're not comfortable." booing Paddy Mills because it's like Paddy Mills, one of the most beloved sort of NBA players across the league. So everyone was a bit like, oh, how do we react to this? And then the beat down the Nets gave them was just so thorough and so pathetic from Philly's point of view. They ended up booing their own team. So I'm going to be very interested to see what happens if next time the Nets go in there, even if Ben Simmons is playing, are the fans going to be a little bit like, well, let's not let's not poke the bear by by booing this team and getting KD and and Kyrie all fired up. But it sort of just it just made it irrelevant. I mean, and that's what KD said at the end. I mean, KD said two things I thought that were illuminated. One, he said you didn't hear no booing of Ben Simmons by the end of that game, and you didn't. And it reminded me of you know LeBron used to be trolled by the Boston Celtics fans for years and years and years for the way he melted down when he was first in Cleveland. And when he went there in, for Miami and he just tore their hearts out in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2012, you never heard no more boos and no more carry on from Boston Celtics fans towards LeBron. And similarly, when KD first went back to OKC and he just, you know, just killed the crowd with a barrage of jumpers in that particular game. And again, every time he went back, it was a little bit, you know, the crowd would just sort of, just accepted him as a, as a really good opposition player almost uh, and, and gave him the sort of respect from that point of view. And I felt like that was maybe the same thing here where the crowd sort of were right into it and, and really rabid and wanting wanting blood and then realising, oh, hang on, we've been overmatched here and we've, we've brought a guy in that's not ready for the moment and things like that. So I kind of feel like they've, even though Simmons didn't play, they've they've uh, they've jumped that hurdle and they're sort of over that now. Did you sort of feel the same way, um, or or do you still think that's going to be an issue for for the Nets if Simmons has to play there in the playoffs? Oh yeah, when he has to play, you know, the first time he, you know, bricks a shot, you know, we'll see. 
right? So we'll see. He's taken the first step, right? You know, and probably gotten over that, you know, coming off the first bus trip and getting all the heckling and seeing, seeing and hearing this, or noticing, I don't know if he does or not, but all the, you know, Ben Simmons is a dickhead posters and t-shirts and things. And, you know, at least he's gotten through the first episode, but Mm. a playoff basketball is no doubt let's let's be honest this guy's got some demons to exercise right it's some serious confidence issues so playoff basketball intensity number one we'll see what that's like for him will he will he have any pressurized moments before he goes back to philly will he have pressurized moments at home as well what if he goes 0 for 8 at home and then they lose the brooklyn loses at home what if the home crowd you know doesn't like how how he plays you know, all those sorts of things go into, yeah, what's going to, what's it going to be like when he goes back to Philly? You know, if it's a meaningful playoff game, I think it'll be, we'll be, we'll have a lot of data points leading up to that to sort of tell us, right, what we can, what we can kind of expect. So I'll, I'll reserve judgment, but yeah, the, let's just say the, the first step's over, but the hardest is yet to come is when the games actually matter and there's actual stakes where he has to actually commit to, you know, um, commit to, you know, playing with his with everything on the line, we'll we'll, we'll see. Mm. But he certainly just by body language and by the way the team had to go over the top from Nash to Mills to KD to to Kyrie to the whole thing. The way they've gone way over the top to make him feel comfortable, kind of feels like you know when you've kind of brought someone home from the asylum and you're just like holding your breath, like oh, well, can they hold their shit together long enough before they have to go back into rehab? Like it sort of feels a little bit like that, Daz. And I hope I'm not insulting whatever it is he's going through but it it feels tenuous Daz. like he's mm. got to he's got to have his own journey and his own path of development and exercise whatever those demons are that he has real or perceived um he's gonna have to go through these on his own i feel like ugh, you know it's okay now but does kd and does kd and Kyrie have the patience to do this for another 18 months you know, going over the top and accommodating him. And, oh, God, I doubt it. Mm-hmm. You know, 18 days, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I'm not kidding. 18 weeks, oh, maybe if they're really successful in the playoffs without him. But, man, I just cannot see them having to accommodate like this very, very long. As, uh, the well, I think the one good coming. thing, the last point I'll make is the one good thing for him is he's not the golden child anymore and it's not, yeah, he was this number one pick going to put the franchise finally in the right direction. He was the prize of the of the process uh, when, he, when he was first drafted in Philly because, you know, of course, Embiid was injured. No one really knew how that was all going to pan out. So I think he sort of felt that pressure. And I think he comes to the Nets and really there's no pressure on him. And, I, you know, Nash could theoretically bench him for the last two minutes of these games if they're worried about him taking three throws and things like that. And I don't think he's the type of personality that would care. I think he'd actually, in some respects, he might prefer to be sitting on the bench. And then, of course, the question is, can they win with with him on the bench and other players out there? And then and that'd be interesting in and of itself. But I kind of feel like he's landed in one of the best possible spaces that he can. I mean, the, the two things he could have landed in was a bad team like say going to the Spurs, and I'm just going to put up, uh, put up numbers for the rest of the season and make myself look good, and and that'll be fantastic, won't it? And we'll we'll make the playing game and and be out in the first round, the best case scenario. Um, or the other thing is be the third wheel on a, on a talented team and not have to sort of carry the load that he had to carry in Philadelphia. And I kind of feel like 
you know, Brooklyn and Golden State were probably the two places he could have landed where that was going to be the scenario for him. So that's why I give him a chance of being successful when he comes in. And I think this is a hump now that they're over. I think they feel like we've beaten the crowd now. The crowd can do all they want. We've just gone in there and ripped their hearts out. And okay, yes, Simmons has got to do it when he's on the court himself. But, um, you know, there's just going to be, you know, when, when the crowd sort of start to rise and, and get, try and get on this Nets team, they might just keep an eye on Kevin Durant. So don't, again, don't poke the bear too much because this guy could explode for 20 points in a quarter on us. Um, you know, at any stage, and we've already seen they don't really have anyone to guard him. Uh, I'm feeling I don't think anyone in the league can guard him really, but no, no one can even slow him down. So, a lot more problems obviously coming out of that game for Philly, I think, um, the Brooklyn does. Yeah, for sure. And I sort of sort of just to put a final stamp on it, I think, yeah, Brooklyn, Brooklyn's very much for real. If, if, if without, without Ben Simmons, they're still a very, very real threat. I think with with the way they can run and the way they can score and just put that unbearable pressure on you with with Kyrie and, and Kevin. So they're legit. I think Boston's looking more and more legit. Um, the Cavs and the Bulls are are not legit. The Bucks, yeah, we'll see. I think the Bucks probably going to be like the Bucks of last year. They could get bombed. They could lose the first two games in a in a round one series and probably still win it all. Like they're just so hard to predict. I got to say with the Bucks, but um, the East is going to be fascinating now that we've got these um, Philly and, and Brooklyn's teams kind of set now. It's, it's man, I just can't, yeah, well, I can't the, wait. The East, that, to be yeah, the East is wide open, Daz, and the more if Boston keep playing the way they're playing, I'm gonna I'll, I'll give you a spoiler that I'm gonna tip Boston to come out of the East, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but we'll wait and see if they can maintain the level of play that they've shown. Um, you know, from basically from December, but predating the white trade, but I think after the white trade, they've sort of gone to another level. Because I'm just, I'm not seeing enough. I mean, I saw Miami get get beaten pretty comfortably by the Timberwolves today, and Miami just to me haven't been consistent enough, and and, and we've sort of gone over some of the warts on these other teams um, across the season. So that's that's where my eyes are firmly fixed over the next couple of weeks as, as the regular season comes to an end. Can Boston take this uh, momentum that they've built up into the Eastern Conference Finals? And I think West Phoenix sit on top of everyone, assuming Chris Paul can come back um, and, and, you know, still be at the same level. So we'll leave it there for today, though, Daz. Uh, it was good talking to you again. And hopefully we can keep doing this on a Sunday as the regular season comes to an end. And uh, we'll see where we end up. We've got March Madness coming up as well. So that's where my eyes might sort of divert there a little bit as we watch the Tankathon rankings uh, <laughs> as well, Daz. Yeah. yeah, you never know when the next Dante DiVincenzo or Wally Zerbiak. <laughs> we can uh, never give Dante versus Lonnie again. My God, <laughs> the, 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 the draft battle for the ages. Lonnie did hit a couple of big shots yesterday in the... Uh, in the fourth quarter. So that was a nice moment for him. Yeah. And uh, poor Dante is poor Dante um, in is exile. In where him and Demonis Sabonis are like already probably had their spirits broken, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll wish them well. But uh, good to chat, Daz. Always. All right. Thanks, chat. mate. Enjoy the week. We'll talk to you, soon. buddy. Bye. Bye.
with it. Cliff Levingston took the charge, and there was no foul called.